Bueno. Hi, everybody. This is Chaubert Chaubert again with The Chaubert Show. And I'm very, very happy and pleased to have my next guest, Mike Vorhaus. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to know him about four or five years now. Probably the most connected person in gaming. It's gaming tech, at least from some of my peers that I've talked to. You got to talk to Mike Vorhaus. You got to talk to Mike Vorhaus. I'm like, how oh, I have never met him. This is like about four or five years ago. So, Mike, thank you so much for being on The Chaubert Show and telling your story. I'd love to hear about who you are and your uh, background. You know, I think it was like four or five years. I think it might have even been more like six or seven years ago. And I think the first time we met was at that cool coffee shop, wine bar, art gallery. um, Yes. Kind of nearish to the entrance of the Oakland Bridge. Yeah. 111 Mina, I think, in San Francisco. Yeah. That place is very cool. We did. You know, it's funny. We were actually kind of similar situation. We're talking about backgrounds and the parallels of us two that came together was my time at addiction. Um, when I was working with Andre and them with like, uh, you know, the app a day and all those fun stuff 10 years ago, you're like, yeah, I'm a, I was an advisor. I'm like, how did I never met you before? <laughs> Andre's a great guy. I don't think I made any money on his company, but yeah. I think, he, you know, here and there. Okay. He's a great guy. You should have him on this. He, uh, will. he would love this sort of thing for sure. Can I just say something that I've thought about from the day I first saw your name? Yeah, please do. You're Shobiri. Yes. Identical name with an I at the end. Yes. And I just want you to know that when I come back in my next incarnation, and I don't mean this to be cheeky. No, no. I want to come back as Mike Michael. I like it. Yeah, phonetically, you're not going to go wrong. People won't forget. They'll be like, do you know that guy, Mike Michael? Yes. I, and then I, I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a crazy story somebody told me once where they were like at a restaurant or a, or a bar and they were like, yeah, blah, 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 Shabir. And some other person's like Shabir Shabiri. And they, they started becoming friends and talking right there. So, you know, growing up, I look back, I'm like, yeah, why did I have this name? I have so many stories. Like I've had a high school teacher say rerun, he called me or deja vu. Homeland Security once was like, whatever, whatever. And I'm just smiling saying, yes, sir. Can I just get my ticket to get on the plane? (laughs) So yeah, it's, I actually like, I'm very fortunate now and I I love it. So yes, Mike, I have Mike Michael on the line here. Mike Uh, Michael here. Yes, exactly. Considering a long-term transition in his name. Exactly. (laughs) I know another cute little name story. There's Ari, Ali Moise and Murti something or rather, they're brothers and they're friends of mine, Murdy Hussein and Ali Moise. And they yes. told me they're brothers. I think you might know them, Streamlabs. And before that, they did two different game companies. They're, they're very successful, you know, young gentlemen. Yes. Um, I've met uh, Ali. I don't recall if I've met Hussein. Uh, yeah, they're both really yeah. cool and they do cool yeah. things down there. They're doing startups, but they're also doing like a charity thing. And one of them is like a big surfer dude. And one of them's like spending a bunch of time with his young family and they've had a couple of good. Anyway, they're brothers. Okay. You know, maybe they're pulling my leg, but they told me they were brothers more than once because I feel like they're pulling my leg. But their, their names are different. Yes. Thank you. They are. Their names are different. Ali Louise and Murti Hussein. So they told yeah. me that I think one of the two of them, their name was so long. I assume their first name or their middle name or whatever that they had to adapt it to a different name or something. I don't know. Seems crazy. 
That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I've actually a couple friends, same thing. You know, one is Sam and uh, the other brother basically has another name, a Mike. And so it's like Sam Sedigian and Mike Bitgali, right? And Mike would come to me like, yeah, that's my brother. And I'd always say, wait, Sam Sedigian? Like maybe they're half brothers. Maybe they're, you know, (laughs) but no, it's just one of them used one middle name or, you know, like the double last name thing. So one used one of it, the other used the other of it. But definitely a good way to confuse people. That's for sure. (laughs) You know Uh, Prince Louis or Prince Louis, I don't know what he goes by. The, okay. the son of the soon-to-be crown prince of Great Britain, William, oh. you know, who will yep. succeed his father, Charles. When the queen dies and Charles becomes king, William's last name will change. He will cease to be the last name of Wales, which is how he went through school oh. uh, and the army. And Lewis will also cease to be a Wales, and they both okay. become Cambridges, I believe. Prince Charles... Oh. Is original Princedom was Cambridge or it's something like that. So, so listen, I want to thank everybody for being here at the yes. name discussion show. <laughs> yes, exactly. If you want one more story of like similar situation with the, you said the, the princes. So my father, his name is Syed Moji Shaberi, Mustafa Shaberi. And technically my name is Syed Shaber Shaberi. My brother's Syed Amir Shaberi, but my dad did something smart. That Sayed technically is like Sir. And he moved those to my middle name and my brother's middle name. Otherwise, it, we would have really confused the heck out of everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah. So on that note, Mike Vorhaus, but going by Mike Michael, where are you from? What's your story? And who you became now? Well, I am from a cool place. And my parents and my dear mother of 96 this coming September is still with us wow. and doing quite well overall. And I have said a million times, I mean, we've all slammed our parents a million times. I've said a million times to people that my parents raised us in the coolest place. And I think there's not anywhere in the United States that I would rather have been raised. I was born and raised in Pacific Palisades, Los Angeles, California. Some of you know it. It's nestled, if I can overuse that word, because it truly is nestled between Santa Monica and Malibu. And I can Mm -hmm. also tell you, by the way, abroad, that when people say, where are you from? And I say, like, Malibu or a little town near Malibu or sometimes I say Santa Monica. Yeah. It's kind of hard to explain to people. People are like, oh, that's super cool. Now that I live in Hollywood, in the Hollywood Hills, all of you can see my view right now over all of Los Angeles out of the back of my house. And all of you can see the view. It's it's an incredible view. I've been there. Very fortunate. Great. Great. Incredible house, yeah. I'm going to make a note here to maybe tell you the NPR TV radio story about a slip I made about audio only. But I made a note. We'll see if we can come back to that story. Anyway, so the Palisades is awesome. And it's literally some cliffs just above the Pacific Ocean, a very narrow part of the Pacific Highway that runs along the Pacific Ocean. And it's super cool, literally. The breeze is ocean breeze. It's often kind of overcast in the morning and always clears off in the afternoon. And you never generally got above 80, 82, 83. And very importantly, because I was born in 1957, the air is much better today than it was in the 60s and the 70s. There was a lot of legislation on the federal level. And the same for the Santa Monica Bay, the, the bay, the crescent of ocean, that surrounds the entire western portion of the Los Angeles Basin 
you eat fish out of there, you you go swimming, you dolphins, whales. I mean, this bay is was all this DET wiped out the bay. And over mm. the years, because they stopped using DET, all the silt was good has naturally created a barrier. There's been some uh, remediation done, but most of what they've done is just set rules on what can go into the bay. And mm. so, you know, picture this. You're living in Los Angeles where it's cool, where yep. it's the least pollution, and you're a half a mile to the beach. I mean, it really couldn't be really – oh, good, great public schools. Not today. You know, couldn't be – more idyllic. And I lived there for 15 years, idyllically. Fantastic. Sounds incredible. And then when, uh, after you uh, got out of the Palisades, where did you head up uh, next? Well, you know, we were a very politically conscious family. My mom had been active in political things. My dad had been active in, in Interesting. politics. And, you know, we talked at the dinner table back in the days in which people sat down for dinner with everybody about these types of issues, you know, and I was born in 57. So when I was 13 and 70 and, you know, I was 16 or 17 by the time the, the war in Vietnam was fully over. So mm. we talked, you know, my parents were, as I think we all were pretty strongly, you know, anti Vietnam war and you know, there was, you know riots and yeah. civil rights. My mom was active in helping, you know, Cesar Chavez and his boycott, oh, wow. the way farm labor was treated when a, so I got very interested in politics at an early age. I remember my fifth grade when Bobby Kennedy was shot, like five yeah. of us the next day. That was like our current events. I was also thinking the other day, driving around somewhere, how I left the current events part of school. If I ever had to go back to school, I want to go to like just the current events, you know, the five minutes at the beginning of, of the class on current events. I loved like cutting shit out of newspapers and talking yeah. about it. <laughs> and I was very politically aware, and I was also informed that people at my age could actually get internships. And so I did an internship back in oh. Washington when I was between 15 and 16. Wow. And then I actually got appointed to a position by the senior California congressman at the time, Chet Hollifield, what they call a patronage appointment, which is they're doing a favor to me and my family because we've been supportive of them we can do a whole other sure. show on that. okay way, do a whole show on me as a congressional page for two years and you know went to the page school worked at the committee on government operations we went to school in the library of congress from 6 a.m to 10 a.m i got into a good college despite my last two years of high school not being the most rigorous but you know i had what they call today social capital my parents were smart spoke good english we lived in the same house our entire life all those things that help you know non-immigrant white American males do, you know, yeah. better than everybody else with maybe the same or less work. So there you go, politically conscious family. And wow. so I got this job and I graduated in the White House Rose Garden and in the caucus room of the House Rayburn building and on the floor of the House of Representatives. We had three graduations. And an idyllic summer in Pacific Palisades, teaching mm. student lessons to some really special people that I met in the Palisades at my parents' pool. And just hanging and having fun and doing what you should do in the summer. And then I went to Wesleyan University, which was and is a massively liberal, open-minded, try-anything, Grateful Dead played there in the 60s, went co-ed before a lot of the other men's schools, closer to New York than a lot of the other elite men's schools. And I wanted to be a United States senator. I never wanted to be president of the United States. I've never had that that outlandish notion. I think I'd be at least as good as many United States senators. 
Yeah. Eric Salinger, who is John F. Kennedy's press secretary, was appointed to the United States Senate by Pat Brown, the first Governor Brown of California, yeah. not not Edmund G. Brown, who's been governor twice, twi- two other sets of terms. Yeah. But his father appointed him to the United States Senate, which would be wonderful to not have to run. And so I moved to Connecticut to go to college, and I applied to all the private schools in Connecticut, and I did not get into Yale, and I got into Wesleyan, and Wesleyan was better than Con or Trinity. And so yeah. I went to the best, I've said this a million times, I went to the best school in Connecticut I could get into. And I had four great years there, and I think perhaps I'll pause at this moment just by saying that by end of 1979 and my four years at Wesleyan, I really wasn't that interested in holding public office. Yeah, it's interesting. After a certain point to uh, go through it, you either, I think you get the blood, I call it, where you become a lifetimer and you like live and breathe in D.C. and or, you know, you come and go between D.C. wherever you're living or you're just like, okay, I've had my fun. I learned about it. I I thought this is who I want to be and now I'm out. And you could probably say the same thing with being like people say, oh, you have good debate skills, communication skills. You should be a lawyer. You probably do so well. And I once went to a, a class, a law school class. They let me sit after an hour and 40 minutes of just looking at one line, the whole time debating. I just told myself, that's not where I'm, the direction I'm going either. But the fact that you were- you literally walk out of law school? No, I asked. So I actually asked like uh, Santa Clara, Stanford, can I sit in a classroom just to get a feel for it? They said, oh, sure. Cool. I went to Santa Clara. They gave me in. I sat there for, you know, I was like in the back corner and they literally were going over this one sentence, the whole class. I told myself, I don't think that's my personality. <laughs> so I didn't have to deal with a lot of my friends who did the, you know, all the process to get in the LSAT, the uh, law school. And then they, a lot of which either dropped out or did law after they did the bar and just got really tired of it, burnt out. Again, I'm not saying bad things about law. Just I realized that early, thankfully. That's not my personality. And I think you did too with regards to politics. Although there is a, a fun and you know great aspect to represent people in your community and, and in Congress and Senate. There's some sort of like cool prestige with that. And I, I think, like you said, if you go into, I would almost have a whole episode on politics. I feel like there's so much I could talk about, but uh, <laughs> but it's interesting. You were like from 15 to your college years. What did you do next? Because I noticed, uh, you know, you're obviously doing games now, but in between, you were an actor. You tried other things too, right? So it wasn't actually in between, and it's much more opportunistic than that. By the way, I will tell you that very rarely, but every now and then, I get very excited about a politician still today. Because I also did part-time work in the Clinton White House and part-time work in the Carter White House doing advance work, where I would go out to where they were going to travel before they did with a whole team of people from different parts of the White House and different parts of the federal government. I did you know, quite a bit of this. I did 13 with the Clinton family. So I didn't entirely leave politics behind and I still, you know, would rather read about the intricacies of the Supreme court than read about, you know, the international monetary fund. And I won't even take your time other than to say that I was a huge believer and supporter of Hillary's and did everything I could to help her, including everything I was allowed to give. And I think she's an extraordinary human. I've seen her in all points of life and she's a, I want a president who's as smart and sophisticated and experienced as she is, who's also a real person. And in my limited experience with Bill Clinton, I didn't find him as real as I actually found Mrs. Clinton, which is shocking because yeah. I think the public image is, is the exact opposite. But I do want to just briefly mention, and I didn't plan to do this when we planned today, 
I finally have found another politician currently, contemporaneously, that I really am excited about. I think there's some good people out yeah. there. I'm not necessarily that excited about them. But this woman, Jenna Griswold, who I met through a Zoom and I subsequently met in person and subsequently had a fundraiser at my house here in L.A., was the first Democrat elected in Colorado to be the Secretary of State in 60 years. And she is the first person in her family to go to a four-year, much less an advanced degree education. Obviously, therefore, the first in her family to have an Ivy League law degree. And she's currently the incumbent Secretary of State of Colorado, which makes her the chief elections officer of the state of Colorado. And she has been at the forefront Mm -hmm. of legislation, best practices, court intervention, fundraising, volunteerism, and her own campaign to be reelected. Okay, so after politics, when did you get into gaming? I could name many sources saying you're the most connected guy, you got to know him. So when did you first get into the gaming sector? I mean, I appreciate most connected guy. Seems to be a good part of my image. But nobody's the most connected guy. I mean, there's a bunch of people that are hyper-connected. Sure. Uh, when LinkedIn launched, because I was in the first 100,000 of them, when LinkedIn launched, I said to myself, by the way, this was a somewhat novel concept back then. Yes. space might have existed. And I said, you know what? I'm only going to connect with C-level people. Smart. <laughs> Smart. So I started inviting all these people way older than me and way above me in, in experience and power and whatnot. And, you know, they accepted me. And, you know, to this day, I have uh, some remarkable people. That's a good match. I mean, you took well, advantage of the early days. I've done the same thing with a lot of my peers in tech. Uh, the early days, there were a lot more fluidity, I feel like, in the 06, 7, 8, 9, right? I intended not to follow anybody who approached me that wasn't. And so I learned this huge lesson early on, which is I learned that the act of not accepting somebody's social media invitation is a statement. So, of course, I accept everybody now. My one rule is if I absolutely have no people in combination, not one, and they're like a financial planner or an insurance agent, then I don't connect with them. But I recognized early on that you can't, it's not like going to Le Cirque in the old days where you were going to only be with your ilk or maybe an ilk that you were aspirational to. But you can't get away with that in LinkedIn. You can't get away with that in Facebook. People know if you didn't accept them. People know if you blocked them. I've just embraced all that, by the way, in the soft side of my whorehouse. The favorite <laughs> 10 or 15 minutes a day of my day is reposting stuff on LinkedIn. I nice. keep my personal stuff on Facebook. Yeah. I love seeing my family. I love seeing my friend's family. I said years ago in a public interview, and I got a call from Dave Winter, the CFO at Facebook, interrogating me about this, that Facebook had become lame and too many people like me on it, which is you know definitely true. By the way, as long as I brought a little bit up about my media, I will tell you that I have moved from two hours of politically internationally oriented news at night through yeah. a variety of mechanisms to... 30 minutes of news and an hour of TikTok every night. It is hey. my absolute, it just tied with the New York Times for my favorite use of media. I Isn't it wild how that social, that product has exploded? It's the fastest social network in history. I think it was the fastest ever to, to reach a billion installs. 
within like a one year time frame, you know, obviously Facebook and Google with YouTube are being threatened about it. Uh, you know, they're competing on the app store level with the rankings on mobile. Yeah. And then you can obviously kind of the dynamics because it's owned by ByteDance based in China, you know, versus the ones that are based here. But in general, the product wise, they just, it's crazy. They bought Musical.ly, which was like one of the most popular music based apps, social music apps. They turned it into the social video product that basically was Vine 10 years ago on Twitter or before Twitter and Twitter bought it and shut it down. So yeah, I mean, it's, I kind of, speaking of like us being in gaming, I always feel like a lot of times gaming starts this to a certain extent. And there's some parallels. I call it the, it's almost like dumbifying your content where it's like so easy to watch in five seconds now, five seconds to a minute long, shortened snippets. And if you got that person's attention, you probably could obviously put a longer content after that post on a daily basis. But yeah, like hyper casual games right now, for example, are kind of the same parallel, which are five seconds to a minute long on your mobile phone. Really like it's a ball rolling game, right? That's not nothing too complicated right there. But it's like there's 10 million people who probably download that app in a day. (laughs) So it's it's pretty wild. So TikTok now is now your kind of content from the New York Times you mentioned or in parallel? So I've always loved the New York Times ever since my parents got it when I was a kid. And and I went to school near New York so I could get it every day in Middletown, Connecticut. It's a great newspaper. You know, has it got Mm -hmm. a tiny bit of a left tilt? Maybe. It's funny, I did a survey once for the Daily News for um, my friend Jesse Angelo, and one of the questions in the, in the questionnaire was, yeah. do you think the Daily News is too far to the right or too far to the left? And we got like 11% of the people said too far to the right, and 11% of the people said too far to the left. You know, if you're a newspaper, that's kind of what you're actually hoping for. You know, I like the subjects. I mean, it's, you know, it could use a little color. That would help. I mean, I loved USA Today when it came out. USA Today weather report. When you have me back for my rerun appearance, I'll talk about when I was a fundraiser. We didn't cover that, but I spent almost oh. 20 years as a fundraiser at Caltech, UC okay. Santa Barbara, and UC Berkeley, because I only went to work for Maggot in my 30s. When I got yeah, we'll skip over fundraising. and but, but okay. the, <laughs> We'll do USA another podcast today. on that. I'll have you on. No the problem. USA Today color weather page. One of the most important things of the most important impact in my entire career of managing teams of fundraisers at universities that easily raised over a billion dollars. Wow. The most important thing. I just, I just New, USA Today was the most read newspaper in the U.S. If you got an article there, everybody read it. Yep. it. It was simple, digested, easy to read. And yeah, I don't remember like the number of Americans who would get it. I think people like the color. It was you know, simple I, to digest. The coloring helped. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the weather, the hot and cold coloring and all that, you know, absolutely. But I did do fundraising for quite a while. I was the assistant vice chancellor at UC Santa Barbara for four years wow. in 1994. Okay. And there was a man in Santa Barbara, well-to-do man named Frank Maggot, And I befriended him through a common friend of ours and introduced him to the communications department at UC Santa Barbara. And Got him introduced him to some fun people and, you know, got him invited to some you know, dinners and, you know, uh, an event with the secretary of the Smithsonian, who was the former chancellor at UC Berkeley. We kind of really bonded that particular interesting event that I brought him to. And I wanted him to endow a professorship at UC Santa Barbara. And he was so open and friendly and entreating of me. 
And I ultimately visited him in his professional offices in Iowa, where he headquartered the Maggot Company. And it turned out that he was trying to hire me. Oh. So I'm sitting there trying to get a million bucks out of him for an endowed professorship at UC Santa Barbara. And he's trying to get me to leave UCSB, take a pay raise, and move to the private sector. Wow. It it didn't happen on that trip, but it certainly got me thinking about it. And California had some ups and downs financially. And because I got into my 30s, I began to understand the role that money plays in in freedom, in choice, in empathy. You know, I've been super proud to take some of the money that I made on DraftKings and skills and create a very modest directed fund at the California Community Foundation. My husband donated some skills stock and built at a local cat foundation here in Los Angeles an entire 500 square foot patio for cats. That's awesome. 500. And and so, you know, there's a lot of really good money to give to politicians and money to go to nice dinners and money's to not fly coach. And, you know, there's a lot of good things about money. Uh, one going to make the money, weirdly enough, at UC until I retired. The retirement was amazing. It was like, I have a friend, she retired, something like 160 in retirement. And, you know, in zero interest rates, she would have needed like, you know, $6 million in liquid cash to, to have the same lifestyle after she retired. But, you know, putting that all aside, I wasn't going to make any money being at the University of California as a fundraiser. And I yeah. kind of made it as high up as I was probably going to go. And I um, you recognize that. Well, the chancellor at the time, Barbara Euling, was leaving. And she said to me that she thought as she'd gotten to know me that I could probably find a job that was maybe a little bit more intellectually demanding. And it turns out Maggot on many levels wasn't a very intellectually demanding because, you know, we were trends analysts. We were consumer interpreters. You know, we helped corporations, particularly media understand the consumer. And I did it for, you know, 24 years there and started their game practice and started their internet practice. And Sony was my first game client. Pogo and EA were my second client. And in the gaming industry and in the digital industry, people talk about you. If you do a good job, they, and people rise up. I mean, I did work for John Riccatello when John was one of the four top guys at EA. Not when he was the king of, you know, unity and iron source. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true, actually. You're all doing, you know, great right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, these, you know, I mean, I'd make as much money as some of these guys, but, you know, these guys literally are my contemporaries. You know, Frank Chabot, great yes. guy, did a great job at Zynga. Yep. You know, Strauss Zelnick, I went to college. I was lived on the same hall as him one year. Great oh, wow. guy, smart guy, nice guy, super loyal to, to Wesley and Wesleyan people. By the way, I did something like this in video format for Dean Takashi with Strauss. Okay about a year ago. It was a very fun conversation. I think if you generally search YouTube for Vorhaus and Zelnick, you might find it. But um, at the very end, we talked a lot about what's a trend, what's a fad, how do you decide, when do you lean into something, when do you wait, when do you buy late? I mean, you know, they bought very late in terms of social games, right? They just bought Zynga. And he was very smart about how he talked about it. And he had a lot of experience in TV and music, uh, in, in film and music. About that yep. too. Anyway, at the very end of our time together, and I will do this for you too. This is a joke on the audio only thing. Uh, okay. He drew an NFT. He drew a palm tree, and he oh. handed it to somebody off stage, off camera, and said, "Here, put this on a blockchain somewhere." Wow. I made an NFT. I mean, he was obviously being tongue in cheek. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the, this is Dean Takahashi, right? Well, Dean asked me to do to get Strauss to do the interview. Okay, and the interview okay, was with Strauss and me. Got it. And it was for Dean's game cool. summit. Dean is the if there were only two people in gaming that don't make games that should have universal life, it's Dean Takahashi and Michael Pactor. Yeah, that's true. Shout out to Dean Takahashi. He's been he's been doing this forever. I remember he was I believe in San Jose Mercury. Before he joined VentureBeat, actually kind of created the GameSpeed section of VentureBeat and probably the strongest, I think, vertical probably on that platform, if I'm not mistaken. Granted, at the same time, the parallel of gaming and how it's exploded into like almost 200 billion market cap globally helps. But, you know, I feel like Dean's definitely paid his due and he's done an incredible job. So good for him. So how long ago when you were talking about you did this, uh, you know, partnerships with Sony EA, how long ago was this? I joined Magnet in 1994. My first client was AOL. My second client was Excite.com, where my brother had been a, was and continued for five years to be a very early employee. And I did a little bit of game work on the station, which was a casual destination for casual gaming, like Jeopardy, that type of gaming for Sony out of New York in like 96. 97. And then I got very involved actually with the Total Entertainment Network. And they had been funded by Kleiner Perkins and others. And I had been introduced to Eric Hackenberg and Leslie Mansford. Oh, yeah. Both were great people. Hackenberg yeah. wanted to, to be the CEO of Meta Cafe. He co founded yeah. Tender, which he sold to Google. One I'm really close friends with his brother, Andrew. Andrew's um, wonderful. GameWorks yeah. uh, SF. Yeah. What it's called AppWorks SF. He's an amazing businessman, super cool dude. Yeah, Another yeah, yeah. lawyer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> They're both, his, aren't they? They're both. As as Eric is also. Yes, exactly. I know more ex-lawyers than I do ex, you know, anything else. And these guys at 10 were at that crucial moment in which they were going from being a dial-up, closed for pay, core, shoot 'em up uh, competition site to being a, what we called at the time, recreational games, and what later finally ended on being called casual games. And to be honest with you, I did numerous research projects over the years trying to figure out what to call these things. We were staying away from calling them casual because we thought it maybe implied some sort of lack of engagement. Recreational was terrible. Family, you know, I guess, you know, maybe we should have just gone with, you know, saying they were G-rated. Maybe maybe that would have been a better but, you know, we needed a name, we needed a positioning, we needed new monetization techniques. All this was 10. And they brought me in to do all their consumer research. And I think they were the first company to ever pay me a consulting fee just awesome. to hear my opinion about how to do things. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe it was the free dinners. that. Uh, <laughs> hey, that the, both help, right? Yeah. What, what year was this? Was This sounds about like 10, 15 years ago? Or? 20, yeah, 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, wow. about... Before the Zingas of the world, right? Yeah, two to four years before. Yeah. 99, uh, 2000 was kind of, you know, you had Adam Shockwave and uh, yeah. I think Tiny Co. was even happening by then. And, you know, you had the very beginning of the Casual Connect conference in that era. Mini Clip, Wild Tangent. Microsoft at one time was a huge. And, you know, these were web-based, predominantly web-based games. They later became these downloadable, disc-based games. 
And then there were these messenger games in the early days, which are not unlike the hyper-casual games you're talking about today. Yeah. And, you know, the major distributors of gaming today, Apple and iOS, or even go down to the developer and publisher, it's just it's an entirely different landscape than existed casual gaming in the era of Pogo. And that's what Ken became. Ken became Pogo. And Pogo was yeah. a web-based casual game site, predominantly, though not exclusively, for middle-aged women, for Walmart moms, as <laughs> Robin Boyer coined at Pogo. Yeah, and then Second Life, you know, like The Sims by EA, a little oh. bit I Am Viewed, which is still around, Together Labs. You know, these were like pre- what now it is like the metaverse and the web free world, but like that was some of these companies, you know, obviously are still around and the brands and IP that was like super early days. You would uh, be shocked how big second life is today. I can't even imagine. You know, I would how- just tell you that their revenue is more than anybody thinks. Good for them. And, and, I mean, and they, own, they own a very good second company that is a uh, surprise, surprise, a bank, you know, fiat smart, Secure payment processing company, probably the most integrated in the gaming industry, and you know approvals in like every state, and you know so on and so forth. By the way, you just together. That's 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 kind of kind of wild. Um, Sorry, you know the console hardcore PC world, the gaming world grew out of these electronic gadget type of people, and the you know the Jobs and the Wozniaks and and the yep. Trip Hawkins and, you know, these just type of personalities. And so for a whole, and they made games about shooting and TNA. And, you know, so it's just natural that all kind of, a lot of it evolved to men. And then, you know, there were so little other than Sims that, that got women at that stage. And, you know, a lot of girls and women in focus groups have told me from, you know, 13 to 24, that's why it's okay to use the girl word. Because okay. 15 to 17, you're a girl. And, and if you're male, you're a boy. That's yep. the politically correct you're only a woman from 18 plus you're only a man we won't get into my religion on the issue of a 13 year old man that's just a would be okay to say. i don't know if i use the the word correctly there and then through technology through the fact that everybody had access to a computer gaming became as female oriented as it is male oriented maybe not as right. much money and by the way today i was just told the other day 35% of League of Legends is women. Really? League of Legends? That's incredible. Pretty yeah. core bro game. I mean, it's yeah. not Call of Duty. Correct. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, man, this is uh, fascinating. I mean, the, the, the time, like you mentioned, uh, this is like crazy how fast it evolved. Growing up, you know, you was only consoles. Somewhat, uh, you had to get the games. The games were published by only a few handful of publishers. The game studios all struggled to find that publisher, to buy into them, to pay for them, and then... Uh, you know, the distribution rights, costs. And then over time, obviously social media came about. And I actually thought when Zuckerberg created the App Store, I thought that was so novel and so good. And that's where the likes of obviously Zynga's and many others took off to this day. I mean, go back and talk about like some of which Zynga bought those companies. And But in any case, and then unfortunately- I agree more. And then, you know, Steve Jobs comes and says, you know, I'm going to create an App Store and here's a brand new device and everyone and mother will get it. Uh, and obviously, Google copied or bought Android. People forget Android was a separate company run, and uh, it was acquired by Google and uh, created that app store. And went and 
that unlocked uh, and decentralized and allowed all these studios around the world to create their own businesses. And it was the Wild West. This is, gosh, this is like 11, 12 years ago. And now we're on another level with this decentralization, Web 3.0. And, you know, I'm still catching up with that one. You know, I was smart to get into the, the mobile space early. I missed out on the social space, you know, when Zynga and all them were growing. But yeah, it's been exciting. I can imagine, you know, your thoughts with, uh, we have about like five, 10 minutes, but I wanted to pick your brain about that, the you know, evolvement and how fast the gaming industry has been. And what's your perspective? How's your experience been the last like 15 plus years since like you brought up uh, all the social gaming? Well, I'm particularly interested actually in talking about the the NFT blockchain and, and crypto stuff. So let's, let's you do are. that. I am, yes. Okay. Um, I, have a, I have a, I think a well thought out extensive point of view, which I would love to share so with what's you. Your, okay, let's talk two quick things. And the first is like the macro side of it. Where do you see that entire Web3, you know, non-fungible token world is now? Where do you see it being for, when do you think it's going to hit like actual mainstream or we are, and we just not seeing it because it's the younger generation that are using all this? I mean, I don't think it's mainstream. Somebody told me the other day, kind of can't believe this, but maybe it's true, that all the NFT blockchain-based games worldwide have 2 million users, regular users. I don't know if it's DAU or MAU. And it's the same 2 million people, 80% of whom are not in the United States, playing Mm. games. It seems That seems like a severe... I'd like to see the raw data before I would adopt I don't that. know. See, that's the challenge. I, there's a couple of challenges, but that one just seems a bit too false because if you you could just counter argue saying no, then what's, you know, what Roblox has there's tens like of more than 10. Well, for sure, right. There's Yeah, that's there's just one company there. right there. Yeah. And um, um, there's another company I was going to mention that they have like a 10 million people already involved in their environment. Here's my total super, I think somewhat unique, take on all this. Okay. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that there's going to be some version of metaverses and something more ready player one-ish and something, you know, similar to the virtual worlds and something building beyond, you know, MMOs and MOBAs. I just think it, if you just look at the progression of media and gaming, it makes complete sense that those are going to exist and the technology is going to allow various aspects to exist. In terms of NFTs, there are these deep macro factors that make them not, these things are not fads. And the reason they're not fads are because they have deep humanistically derived drivers. They're not culturally driven. They're not politically driven. They're not language driven. They're not history driven. They're things that people do. And so in the world of NFTs, we're talking about people owning things, Correct. making things, trading things. And my personal favorite, where we're going to find the whales, collecting things. Humans like to do those things. NFTs are both a digital tag or label or ownership, like your business card laminated on your suitcase. Yes. Or they actually are the item. You know, they actually are the sword. They actually are the the stealth cloak or whatnot. And an IAP shows. 20 billion or whatever in the US this year shows that people want to buy things. And I've done a lot of research that shows that people want to, particularly 34 and under, make money on their working on games. They're interested yeah. to play to earn. You know, do they want their fundamental game ing fun disturbed much? No. Are they willing to try new and different things? Yes. 
do yeah. some people find building these types of caches? I own a Gala node, so I have a cache of Gala coin. It's not the most exciting thing in my life, but I check it every day to see how my little cache is doing. Just like people would go out and check their horses or people would go out and yes. check the bison on the rain. I mean, you know, people have been making pictures of animals that they killed. That's their analog digital NFT of an animal they killed. Today, you just take a picture in your uh, phone and if for some reason you wanted it on the blockchain, and this is the key point I want to get to, then you find a blockchain, you throw it down. The blockchain itself is not the most important consumer-oriented, gaming-oriented aspect of Web3. Yeah. The blockchain... It's a long ways away. Well, and some very interesting non-gaming applications. Food companies are using it to track food supply chain. In Sweden, it's being used to record deeds and land. In uh, the Baltics, it's been used to record government documents to avoid... Uh, piracy of government documents and felonious, is that the right word? False ownership of land. People were, were in cahoots with the government in these countries, making up fake deeds and owning the land and getting the police to push people off their land who had like, you know, an old piece of paper that they couldn't find. Uh, or yeah. There was, you know, 300 years of generations and, and there's a million things, you know, your health records, your financial records, every time you get a mortgage, wouldn't you love to just give your key to your financial blockchain to the people collecting the data so you don't have to do all that ridiculous gathering of, of yep. information? So the blockchain is not 100% needed to have goods that are digital, that are traded, that are built and earned and have value over time by playing. And even you don't need the blockchain for them to be interoperable. And that's, of course, the big issue. When are we going to get to something that I honestly can take, if I want to, from Xbox to Linden Labs to a new thing, to Eve, to Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok and, and my social media? You know, why can't I have that avatar in my Telegram? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's interesting. The, what's his name? Moxie? Marlin Spike, the founder of like Signal, the iOS Android yeah, app. He, I don't know if you read his blog post, but he was... You know, obviously this, the last few years before, like on this year, we had like a lot of market, I call it fixes. And obviously it's a inflation, if you want to call it and, and everything else. But he mentioned that his blog was very thorough saying the blockchain has a long ways away because to have a decentralized network, it needs an immense amount of cloud computing, decentralized, you know, servers that are like energy efficient. And right now, you know, the ones that are most successful platforms are kind of what the VCs love is the centralized stuff like OpenSea for NFTs to uh, whatever the platforms are, but people use to be on the metaverse. So, I mean, that is an interesting argument. One of the things you brought up that caught my attention, you mentioned that people, there's like 20 billion, or did you mean like 20 million people waiting to, uh, you know, spend to buy an NFT? So the 20 billion is a reference to the in-app money spent last year in the U.S. on mobile in-app purchases. Got it, yes. So okay. zero 14 years ago. That's correct. And I will tell you that we did a long-term projection for Warner Brothers, Martin Trumbly, and Nate Jones, and Steve Chang, and Steve wasn't there, that, and other people. And we were spot on at Maggot about uh, when that business was going to, you know, hit a bill, and hit five bill, and 
I don't know if we got all the way to 20 bill. I think we probably only did it. Interesting. And you know yeah. how we did that? We did that because we were very conscious of the rise of the smartphone, had good adoption information, and we saw other business models in other countries, particularly in Asia. But let me just say one more thing before we disconnect on the sure. uh, Web3, NFT, blockchain, gaming, and currencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I believe that all these things will be way up, whether it's Animoca or, or Immutable or Mythical or Gala or any of Polygon. I believe there will be bumps in the road. I believe that if I have a little bit of money in some of these companies and if Polygon was bought, I believe in the next two or three years, I believe that person that bought them might be considered to be a greater fool and that there's really, they're buying a lot more than there is there. But I think that quote unquote fool will turn out in the long run to look brilliant because I think these early players are going to have these very long relationships with consumers, a yeah. lot of trust and brand importance in these relationships. So I'm kind of like all in on NFTs and and gamification and crypto and games and play to earn, but it will not be a linear path up into the yeah. realm. Yeah, it's going to take some process, but I think some of these companies, as you mentioned, some of the names and beyond, they're definitely going to be like the household names and mega companies over time. And they're defining where this movement's going. And I think if you wait like in another couple of years, there's going to be a, another younger generation who will more money in it. The market will be up. All the infrastructure and the learnings are there. And it, that's going to be another potential like hockey stick in the market space for this world. We'll see. I mean, we haven't even seen like the beginning of like a household thing, in my opinion. Because even like the stuff, for example, the bored apes of the world and others, that's just like one niche. But can you imagine like everybody and their mother really using something that's tokenized and game uh, and played everywhere. I mean, that's like that Niantic dream. <laughs> you know, they tried to do that with like Pokemon Go, which had a movement several years ago. Three, I think it was like four or five years ago. It was this insane movement to see people just park their cars in Central Park, New York and go find a Pokemon. Or I was in Ocean Beach, San Francisco, and I saw a thousand people all of a sudden come when I was doing, uh, just having like uh, a bonfire with friends. So you know, I think these are just like the first steps and I'm pretty excited. And I'm, you actually kind of answered the question. I was going to ask like, what are you the most excited about now in the future? And it seems like you're all in about this web metaverse, web three kind of decentralization. So any last words, any thoughts uh, while uh, you know, everybody's listening to uh, Mike Vorhaus? Mike, Michael, I Mike, will add that yes. one word. Live nice. Cast. There you go. I love it. Well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for being part of the Chabert Show. It was great to have you and definitely uh, love to have you on again in the future. And uh, yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, Mike's story. And thanks again for listening to the Chabert Show. Thanks, buddy.